Uh, one night this summer, uh, I was out fishing with my son Luke, who is seven, and Luke says to me, Dad, do you know what is so great about heaven? I could not wait for the answer, let me tell you. He said, you get to do whatever you want. Well, I think it's pretty natural for us to think heaven will be an extension of the best things here on earth. I certainly have those moments at the cabin where my heart says, man, I hope heaven is like this. But even more, I can cling to this notion that I will finally be in control of my life and that, and that I'll get to choose to do what I want. I think what we think about heaven is really an, a reflection of what we really value in life here on earth. We've been talking about the upside-down kingdom now for several weeks, and I think at the core of the struggle for me of grasping this and really living it out, well, it's frankly that I want to be in control of my life. I want to be the king of my kingdom. On some level, I bought into the lie, the lie of Satan, that says I can manage my life better than Jesus can and I cling to building my own kingdom. How about you? Can you relate to that? I think we can subtly buy into the, the thinking that our purpose here in life is happiness and personal fulfillment. On some level, then, we think it's God's job to make sure that that happens. And then we can start to read the Beatitudes like Jesus is giving us the steps to make sure it's that happens for us, right? Like, if we are good, if we are humble, if we bring about justice, if we try harder, if we improve just a little bit more, then God owes us a heaven with all our favorite things. Kyle Strobel says, we will continue to think heaven is just a better version of what we love here on earth until we begin to see Jesus as glorious. And J.R. Packer reminds us, what will make heaven to be heaven is the presence of Jesus. If you are a believer, this prospect satisfies you completely. Are you starting to see my disconnect? Heaven is really about Jesus, but I keep wanting to make it about me and my loved ones. Can you relate to that? In order to experience God's kingdom here and in heaven, it requires that I let go of what our culture says about building our kingdom on success, power, money, comfort, recognition. We should not see the Beatitudes then as a list of to-dos, but instead see them as an expression of the person who really gets what Jesus is saying here and has allowed grace to transform their life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they have seen their need for God's mercy. Blessed are those who grieve and call out for God, for God shall comfort them. Blessed are those who are humble, for grace rolls downhill. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they see that they have none of their own. And by faith, they receive the righteousness of Christ. And then we get to today's beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Can we say that together? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Look at that. You guys memorized the Bible verse. Good job. 
Mercy is a core theme of the book of Matthew. And I think to understand the implications of what Jesus is saying here, we really need to understand the context of the whole message of the gospel of Matthew. If we read this verse without context, we might start to think, I better be merciful so that I can earn God's favor, so I can be rewarded with mercy from him. There is always a real danger when we drop into any section of the Bible without understanding the main point the author is trying to make. Tim Keller says, the reason for our confusion is that we we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. So let's try to understand the context of Matthew and what he is trying to teach us. If you have your nifty copy of Matthew, it'll be handy today, or you can use a pew Bible, or we'll put the verses up on the screens for you. We're going to begin in the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Two years ago, I taught through the Gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter, verse by verse, And I was really overwhelmed by what a masterful job Matthew did at teaching me that I need a Savior more than I think that I do. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 1.1. We understand that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. We're going to go through the whole book, by the way. Chapter 1, all the way, every verse. No, that's not true. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he begins with the genealogy because they would care about his credentials. And so he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? What he's saying is that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he is the Messiah, the anointed one that they had been waiting for. The son of David. That is, that he is the true king. And why does that matter to us today? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that the person speaking the Sermon on the Mount is not just a teacher, he is the king. He is the king of this upside-down kingdom. You see, when a teacher teaches, you kind of nod and, "Hmm, sure, that's interesting, yep. And then maybe you decide to, to apply some of it to your life. But when your king speaks, you submit. And you see, Jesus did not come to teach you some things that you did not know. He did not come to tell you to shape up your life. He did not come to give you three points for a better marriage. No, he came to do something that you cannot do for yourself. We see this clearly in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Let's look at that. You should underline this verse, put stars by it, a smiley face. This is the purpose statement for the whole gospel of Matthew. The angel is talking to Joseph, and the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, when we understand that this is why King Jesus came, it helps us shape the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. It becomes the lens through which we read the whole story. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So as we move forward then into understanding the Sermon on the Mount, it's helpful to understand a little bit about this Jewish audience. And I would say that many of these people who were Jews thought they were good people. 
They were right before God because they kept all the rules and they were born into a good family. They would have been so offended by the idea that they needed to be saved from their sins. I mean, other people were sinners, right? The Gentiles, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. No, these Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who would save them from their problems, from the Roman oppression. What about you? Are you more interested in a Messiah who will save you from your problems or a God who will save you from your sin? The Gospel of Matthew stands in contrast to the Gospel of Luke. What I see so often in the Gospel of Luke is we find lost people who find Jesus and Jesus gives them mercy. That is, these are people who know that they are sinners and need a Savior. But in Matthew, he spends so much of his writing showing us we are not as good as we think we are. That we need a Savior to rescue us from our sins more than we think we do. One of the themes that I see that is consistent in the gospel is that Jesus preaches the law to those who think they are good, and he preaches grace to those who knows they are sinners, right? Because you cannot receive mercy until you know that you need mercy. So let me give you some examples from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pretend for a moment that you and I are one of those people who think we are so good that we don't need Jesus very much. And let's turn to Matthew 5. We're going to go right past the Beatitudes into the depths of the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll start at verse 17. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Sometimes I wonder if we have mistaken grace to mean I can do whatever I want. God will give me a free pass. But Jesus says, the law has not gone away. Sin is still bad for you. Sin still destroys relationships. The wages of sin is death. We have gotten really adept at managing any discomfort the law of God causes us. We minimize God's law by softening it. We call lies fibs. We call adultery affairs. We call idolatry the good life. Paul Tripp often says, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We ignore God, God's law, if it gets in the way of what we want. Let's look down at verse 20. What does Jesus say there? He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We tend to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys, but certainly when the disciples heard this, they would have said, who then can be saved? Because in their mind, there was no one else who was more righteous. There was no one who kept the law better than them. They kept the rules to a T, right? But they did it without love in their heart. They did it without love for their neighbor. They did good works for themselves, really. They were trying to get blessings from God and approval from other people. If you're doing good works to get a reward from God or so that other people will like you, you're really just being selfish. You're doing it for you. 
Can you handle one more? Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What is Jesus saying here? He's he's saying being angry with your brother is the same as committing murder. I know that some of you are thinking right now, I am so glad that I'm an only child. (laughs) But obviously Jesus is saying your brother is any person, right? How many people here have ever been angry, annoyed, irritated, frustrated? The rest of you, this sermon on lying is next week, so... (laughs) Did you see what Jesus just did here? Jesus just called me a murderer. Jesus called you a murderer. And what does Jesus say is the penalty for murder? Condemnation, right? He even goes on to say that if you insult a person, you deserve the fires of hell. Are you starting to feel the heat yet? Jesus continues the chapter with more sayings that are hard to hear. I am so glad that I don't have time to tell you about what Jesus says about cutting off your hand, gouging out your eyes, and loving your enemies. But he ends in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, God does not grade on a curve. If you want to come before God in your own goodness, the standard is perfection. And Jesus, the Apostle Paul, King David, all say the same thing. There is no one who is good, not even one, except God alone. Mark Twain has a character who says he hates to read the Sermon on the Mount because it feels like it is crushing his chest. Is it getting hard for you to breathe yet? Can you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here? We began today by saying, we often think if we jump through the right hoops and earn God's approval through effort and self-improvement, we will get what we deserve. And what is Jesus saying we deserve? Condemnation. This might be a good spot for us to stop and talk about mercy before you all burst into flames, (laughs) right? Mercy means not getting the punishment that you deserve. We can think about grace as meaning God's unmerited favor, God's blessings towards us, but mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. In Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The New Living Translation puts this more pointedly. It says, I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. You see, people who think they are good enough, they do not turn to Jesus. People who think they are righteous, they never repent and ask God for mercy. But Jesus came for sinners like me. You see, the gospel must be good news before it can be bad news. When we start to see the depths of our sin before the holy God, the only thing we can do is fall on our knees and say, Oh Lord, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, Jesus looks into every life and he says, I see everything. I see every thought. I see every desire. I see every bit of selfishness in you. And do you know what? I love you. In fact, this is the reason why I came. I came because you are broken and you cannot fix yourself. Jesus loves us so much that he took all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our selfishness, and he took it upon himself, and he died the death that we deserved on the cross. This is mercy, and there is more. He not only forgives us of our sin, but he credits to us his perfect obedience, so that when we stand before the Father, the Father only sees the perfection of Christ. This is grace. As the Apostle Paul says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Paul can say that we are holy and blameless because the obedience of Christ is credited as our own. See, God offers us these gifts of grace and mercy by faith, that we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. Instead of putting our faith in our self-improvement, our self-effort, and our self-righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see their spiritual need for Jesus. For they shall ask for mercy and receive it. To the degree that we see our need for Jesus, the more glorious Jesus becomes. Often Jesus is not glorious to us because we don't really see ourselves as that bad. Do you remember the prostitute who pours perfume on Jesus' feet? Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he pronounces, those who have been forgiven much, love much. You see, as God's grace and mercy becomes a reality to us, it slowly changes us from the inside out. We enter into the upside-down kingdom. The upside-down kingdom of life becomes possible only because Christ is in us. And as Christ works in us, we grow in our love for the king. and We start to give him control of our life. We become meek. We become the peacemakers. We strive to bring this kingdom into a reality for other people. You see, the fruit of our faith in Jesus is in our love for other people, especially for those who have hurt us. The more we see our own need for mercy and receive that mercy, the more freely, freely we give that mercy to other people. And sometimes this process of forgiving someone who has hurt us can take a very long time. About 18 years ago, I went through a divorce I was really angry toward my ex-wife, and I, that anger turned into bitterness, and I really struggled with this concept of forgiveness. But God was faithful. He pursued me. Who knew that the path to forgiving my ex-wife would begin by him showing the darkness of my own soul? He showed me the depths of my sin nature, not just the obvious sins, but even more the sins that were deadly to my soul, those sins called pride and self-righteousness and self-reliance. 
And this revelation led me to darker places called self-pity and self-destruction. But God did not leave me there. He showed me that I had been running from grace and running from my need for Jesus. How I had been trying to avoid Jesus by trying harder to be perfect. What I needed really was for everything to be stripped away. My reputation, my career, my family, my identity. And in that dark place where I had nothing, I really did want a Messiah who would save me from my circumstances. But over time, what became evident is that I needed a Jesus who would save me from my sin. As I began to understand that Jesus became more glorious, grace became more amazing. Jesus started to become the source of my life instead of my identity and my career. And as I was growing into that grace, Jesus was whispering in my ear and he would say, you know I died on the cross for your ex-wife too. I have to be honest and say I was so offended when I heard that. (laughs) And I would say, but Jesus, you don't know what she did to me. And he would smile and say, He would say, you know that I know. And I would say, but Jesus, come on. The process continued over time. The more I saw my need for Jesus and my ongoing need for his mercy, the more my heart would soften. My resistance to the whispers of Jesus became smaller and smaller until eventually I was able to begin to give her mercy. I have to say that receiving mercy, of course, is not something that's a one-time event. This process happens over and over again in big and small ways every day of my life. My pride is still what gets in the way of experiencing my need for Jesus and his mercy. I see it in how I respond to drivers on the road. I see it in how I react to my three-year-old when he destroys my stuff. But the good news is that growing in my faith isn't outgrowing my need for Jesus. It's actually growing more dependent upon him and running to Jesus more quickly to receive mercy. As God's mercy has infiltrated my life, I grasp something of the essential nature then of what it means to make disciples. It is receiving mercy from God and then showing other people how it happened. So this is my prayer for you that the Holy Spirit would show you your need for Jesus, that you would see what the cross has done, that it would go down deep into the depths of your being, that it would fill you with joy, that it would break you and change you, that it would make you alive in Christ, and then that out of you would flow rivers of love and mercy towards others. Amen? We thought it would be good today to end the sermon by confessing our sins. So I thought we'd spend the next seven hours, the Vikings don't play till 7.30, <laughs> confessing our sins. <clears throat> you see, the good news is God doesn't hold our individual sins against us. What we are confessing is that Jesus makes us right. So let us confess together. I confess that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Because I belong to Jesus by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross has freed us from the bondage of sin. Your mercy conquers our hearts with love. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift in Jesus our Savior.